Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Great to have you here with us today. And if you're online, we're thrilled to have you as well. Have you ever seen or been in a situation or heard about this from a friend where you've been in a situation where there's some type of religious rule or some type of religious law or some type of commandment that ends up getting in the way of prioritizing love and compassion towards somebody. That that law, that religious thing, got in the way of caring for people. People who did this were not Jesus' favorite kind of people, and that's what we're going to look at today and discover in week three of our series, Signs. Now, we've been reading through the Gospel of John together as John follows Jesus, and what we know is that John did not choose to follow Jesus because of faith. John chose to follow Jesus because of what he saw and what he heard. And he described it to us this way in 1 John chapter 1, in one of his little letters, he said this. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And what is this word of life? He said, the life, it appeared. And we've seen it. And so because we've seen it, he says, we testify to it. And we proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard. And so when John writes his gospel letter, that's what we're looking at in this series, and and today we're going to be in John chapter 5, if you even want to head there now, John doesn't share with us uh, this letter simply so we'll know a bunch of facts and know about Jesus. John wants something to happen to you that happened to him. And so he says this in John chapter 20, verse 30. He said, here's the reason I wrote. He said, Jesus performed many other signs. Everybody say signs. Signs, that's their series. He performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't even recorded in this book. But I chose to write these, he says. But these are written for a reason, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I want you to see what I've seen. I want you to hear what I've heard. Do you see what I see? Do you hear what I've heard as we sang in that song? And even though for you and I, it's secondhand, so to speak, John says, I'm going to write this and I'm going to put this out to you in such a way that you hopefully and prayerfully will arrive at the same conclusion that I did. So what does John do? He lays out for us a sequence of events John calls these events signs. And John says these signs are going to serve as evidence of something. Evidence of something that you can eventually believe in and even place your trust in. And so John hopes, as he just shares these these signs, these, these conversations, these events, John is hoping that these will convince you just like they convinced him. Because ultimately, all the signs, all the events all the conversations, ultimately, they all point to the identity of someone, namely Jesus, his identity being the Son of God. Now today, we're going to look at the third sign uh, in the Gospel of John. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 1, excuse me, John chapter 5, verse 1. And it says this, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. 
you know, in the previous chapter, chapter four, we looked at, he heals the royal official's son. And so now sometime later, they leave Galilee. They head back to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us what the festival is. It's not important to John's narrative in this particular part of the story. And it says in verse two, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. It says there is a pool. John wrote this, you know, years after the, after the event, but he says there is a pool. Now what's interesting, for centuries, people have said, yeah, the Bible's not true. How can you trust the Bible? There's no pool of Bethesda, it doesn't exist. That, that's been the case for a lot of people over the centuries who've claimed that because there's no evidence of something, that, that the Bible isn't true. But archaeology, for the last hundred years or so, continues to, to bring, to, to discover or rediscover what used to exist. And so this is one of those items where people say, well, the Bible's not true because there is no, you know, there is no pool of Bethesda. Archaeology proved it. So I just want to encourage you, if you're ever hearing people or people are making some kind of case to say, well, the Bible can't be true because those people never existed or that spot never existed, all that means is archaeology hasn't found it yet, all right? And so this is another one of those items that archaeology has discovered and found. I've been there myself on numerous occasions. And in verse 3, it says this, here a great number of uh, disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, in ancient days, uh, in ancient times like this, doctors were scarce. And the reality is they didn't know very much. In part because Rome had a law. Rome had a law that, that you could not examine a dead body. You could only examine a live body, which didn't help doctors increase and grow in their knowledge. On top of that, you only had access to a doctor if you were rich. So what did everybody else do? Everybody else was dependent on their religions, was dependent on their temples, and they were dependent upon superstition. And in this story, it actually hinges upon a a superstition, a legend. And the legend said this, in this pool of water, uh, Bethesda is what it was called, the legend said that every once in a while, an angel would come down and stir the waters. And whoever was there, the person who got in first to where the water was being stirred, that person would be healed. And so uh, that was kind of how the legend went. And since this pool has been excavated and and we now have it and we know about it, we know that there was a reservoir that that fed, uh, you know, living water, so to speak, into the pool. Additionally, they discovered a spring bubbling up from the bottom of the pool. So whether it was the spring bubbling up or whether it was the reservoir at times when it would would flow into this pool, either way, when the water was stirred, people believed that there was an angel stirring that water. And so everybody jumped into the water to try and get healed. So in that moment, people who are paralyzed, who are blind, who are sick and diseased, you can imagine they're all just trying to rush in to be the first, to be healed. I can only imagine how chaotic it must have been. So it's into this environment that Jesus walks. Now what I find interesting is this is a place where there's full of people who are diseased and, and full of sickness. Healthy people would have avoided this place like the plague. Imagine the constant stench of sickness and disease 
people would be brought and left for who knows how long. Maybe you had someone who loved and cared for you enough that they'd bring you for the day but then take you home at night, but others weren't so fortunate. I would imagine city workers would have to go through this area from time to time because they would have to cart off those who had died and had just been left for dead, and they were rotting. It's into this environment that Jesus walks. John chapter 5, verse 5, it says, one who was there has been an in, had been an invalid for 38 years. And based on what Jesus is going to say later, there, there is a reasonable assumption that, he wasn't in, that he's not 38 years old, that, that there's a point when he wasn't an invalid. But he's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, let's go back. Remember Jesus' first sign. His first sign, if you remember, if you're with us in week one, he turned ceremonial wine, uh, ceremonial water into wine, right? And then also uh, there was the Samaritan woman that Jesus went up to and, and Jesus called, uh, talked about living water versus well water. And now we have in this story another story that involves water. We have a, an invalid who is depending on water to heal him. John chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, so Jesus sees him, and Jesus decides, here's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for another sign. So Jesus bends down, and I imagine he quietly says to him, verse 6, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's a question that, that we all wrestle with from time to time. Do you actually want to get well? Because the reality is, the answer isn't always yes. Because for some people, it's harder to get well than it is to stay sick. Sometimes getting well or getting help calls for more humility than staying sick. Sometimes staying sick gives you things and stuff and gives you something that you won't get when you're well. Sometimes staying sick or staying in a habit is easier than getting help. And sometimes your identity is even wrapped up in your sickness. Whether you have some physical ailment or perhaps some habit that is not healthy or or some issue that everybody around you knows is destroying you, I want to ask you the question for you. What in your life is an area where you need to get well? Do you want to get well? I would suggest to you if you have the mental capacity, the potential, and the resources where you can get well, and I got to tell you, as someone who is made in the image of God, you honor God, you honor yourself, you honor the people you love. If you will just get some help and get well, invite God in to bring a healing in your life. Because Jesus, he doesn't impose his will upon this man, man whether he wants it or not. So Jesus asked him the question. He asked us the question, do you actually want to get well? Well, it turns out, this guy really actually did want to get well. Verse 7, John chapter 5, he said, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, in other words, yeah, I do want to get well. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always goes down ahead of me. Just imagine these moments when the water is moving, whether it's from the spring below or 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 the living water flowing in. Imagine the chaos 
Imagine the desperation for people who are trying to get in and get to where the water is stirring. And then imagine all the disappointment of all these desperate people. People who, want, who are there because they want to get well. Jesus, upon hearing this man, says to him, John chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, get up. Now, the Greek is interesting uh, here. It paints a, a pretty good picture for us, at least I think so. It's sometimes translated, the word get up is sometimes translated as wake up. It's translated as rise up. And it's even translated as come to life. You have this person who's sick. And God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, come to life. I see your sickness. Come to life. I see your sickness. Let's wake up and get out of this. I see your sickness. Let's rise up out of it. But what Jesus says next actually makes this seemingly random act of kindness actually sets the stage for it being a sign. Jesus says, and when you get up, I also want you, verse 8, to pick up your mat and walk. Everybody say mat. That's an important part of the story. It's part of the sign that's taking place here. The story is just getting started. And Jesus is going to do something that John looks back at this story and he realizes, oh my goodness, this was a sign that he was giving us. John chapter 5, verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And as he's walking, he realized, oh man, I'm walking. And he's got his mat in his hand. And he turns around to thank Jesus, but Jesus is gone. He had disappeared into the crowd. And in asking this man to pick up his mat and walk, Jesus has done something here. Jesus has stirred a hornet's nest. Why? Verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now, if, if you've read the Gospels, if you've been in church for any length of time, you somehow know, you know enough to know that, man, when you hear the Sabbath and Jesus healing on a Sabbath, they're doing something on a Sabbath, there's oftentimes like religious leaders involved, and then if you have a vague recollection, you realize something always ends up happening, right? And this case is no different. Now, on the Sabbath in Jerusalem, Pharisees would walk around and they felt it was part of their religious duty to make sure people weren't violating the Sabbath. Okay, so that's, they, were, they were just the ones walking around and always, you know, pointing people out and, and drawing attention. Oh, you blew this and you blew this. And so they see this man carrying a mat walking towards the temple. The man probably hasn't been to the temple in years, if not decades. He's been close the Bethesda pool is on the north, uh, northeastern side a little bit, close to the temple, so he could probably hear, hear the praises and, and the worship, and he could probably he was in hearing distance, but he hadn't been there for quite some time. And now he finally has an opportunity to go before God, to offer a sacrifice, and to thank God. John chapter 5, verse 10, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Actually, the law didn't forbid him. Their tradition forbid him from carrying a mat. It was called the tradition of the elders, or it was also known as the oral Torah. See, the story was 
that when Moses came down from the mountain and had the, the written commandments, the Ten Commandments, that he also brought with him the unwritten commandments, the oral Torah. And the story goes that he passed those along to Joshua, who eventually passed those along to the judges, who passed it along to the prophets, who eventually passed it along to the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees, they have all these extra rules that were like a fence that was around the written law so that no one could ever even remotely come close to disobeying God's written law. Well, over time, this oral Torah, this tradition of the elders, took on such um, power in people's lives that people viewed it as having equal authority as the written law that God had actually given his people. Now, this oral law, it had 39 categories. And under each category were dozens and dozens of rules or laws that stated what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And one of those rules was that you could not carry something from one place to another. Because if you carried something from one place to another, you were violating the Sabbath law. So, in the minds of these religious leaders, this healed man is violating the fourth of the Ten Commandments. What, what's the fourth commandment? It's, it's simply this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy and never carrying a mat. Remember the Sabbath. Here's the deal. The whole point of the commandment is to take a break from labor. It's not to take a break from love. It's not to take a break from compassion. It didn't mean we, we set aside love for a day or set aside compassion for a day. It's to take a break from our labor. And yet, what happens to anybody in any religion when we forget the why behind the what we lose sight of what the, the commandment was intended for in the first place. In fact, it happens to us. We get to this place, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Whenever we defend a, a theological system, uh, a theology, whenever we defend an ideology, a, a system, Maybe whenever we defend a political agenda or a, or a political system or a political party, whenever our loyalty to whatever that is, whenever that takes precedence over the people that that or we claim to serve, we're missing it. It's what happens whenever any of us embrace a system that becomes more important to us than the people that the system is supposed to represent or supposed to serve or supposed to benefit or supposed to defend. You and I would all do well just to look in the mirror, to examine our own lives, to be brutally honest with ourselves. Man, is my defense of a theology, of a theological system, of an ideology, of a political party, of an agenda, is any of that taking precedence for me over the people those are claiming are meant to serve. But why? Why would you and I do well to ask this question? It's simple. It's really simple. When what is best for people is no longer most important to you, you're just at odds with God. 
when what is best for others is no longer most important to you, you end up being at odds with God because God loved us. He loved people so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. God is in the business of connecting with us, with reconnecting with us. And so God's priority is this race that's been made in his image. And so if you or I are using something, a law, a theology, a system, politics, whatever it may be, if I use something to to distance somebody from God, I'm at odds with God. Even scriptural application that gets in the way of somebody being treated honorably and with dignity, man, we're at odds with God. And that was the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Their laws got in the way of treating people with love and compassion and dignity. So the story continues. They said to this man who had just been healed, okay, this is the religious leader saying to the man, John chapter five, verse 10, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. No, actually, your version of the law forbids him from carrying the mat. You added the mat part to the law. That's not the actual law that came from God. Verse 11, so they ask him, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat, but he replied, well, the man who made me well told me, pick up the mat and walk. Uh, This is great, you gotta try to picture it with me a little bit. Uh, This man has his mat slung over his shoulder, okay? Because remember, Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. So he's got his mat and he's walking along. He's getting his legs under him, so to speak. It's been 38 years since he's used them. And he responds to them and he says, the man. I don't even know who the dude was, the man. And he said, the reason I picked up my mat and started walking the first time in 38 years, by the way, I might add, it's not like I was trying to violate the Sabbath. But the reason I picked it up my mat and I walked is because a man asked me to do it. He told me to pick up my mat and walk. So I tried it and I did and here I am. And this is why I have my mat and this is why I'm walking around. And by the way, religious leaders, since we're talking about my life right now, I just want you to know I've opted for the guy who said pick up your mat and walk, who showed me compassion, who cared about me, I opted for him over you who has watched me suffer for 38 years, who's condemned me and judged me saying, you've sinned or or your parents have sinned and I have chosen him over you. So yes, I picked up my mat and walked. He didn't ignore me like you've done. I did what he asked me to do. Verse 12, so they ask him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Who's this man? who's defiling the laws. Because, they're already prepping this, because they know if this man actually healed him, and clearly he did, then this man defiled the Sabbath as well. Because we have another rule. You know, section 28, subparagraph D, point three, you know, we have another rule that says you can't practice medicine on the Sabbath unless somebody's actually dying. You've been an invalid for 38 years. You're clearly not dying today. The guy could have waited another day before he healed you. So not only have you violated the Sabbath by walking around with your mat, he violated the Sabbath by healing you on the Sabbath. We need his name. We're making a list. Verse 13, the man who had no idea who healed him, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Now, 
what happens next, I'm going to do my best to kind of share what I think is a pretty humorous part of this story. Maybe one of the more humorous things in the New Testament. I don't know if you'll grab it, if I can get it out in such a way, but, but see if you can track with me. Um, verse 14, later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Okay, so 38 years an invalid, oh, see, you're well again, you're, you're walking around. And so that's why I tend to think he, was, he hadn't been an invalid his whole life. We're not sure if Jesus was looking for him. We don't know that. But Jesus does see him and calls to him. The guy turns around. He's surprised. He's like, hey, it's you, but who are you? People are asking me about you. Who are you? So they get in this conversation, and he gets the, Jesus gets the lowdown from the conversation he had with the religious leaders. And then here's what I tend to think is a funny part, because Jesus now knows he's been accused of sinning, because they said, hey, they said I sinned. I've been carrying my mat. And Jesus says, well, you better stop sinning then. And the reason I see some humor in this is because theologians can't agree on what the sin is. And they all have their ideas and they all have their theories. But let's just read this for a moment like normal human beings. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the worst. You, you can't hang out with those type of people if you're some pompous religious freak, Right? There was something compelling about Jesus in his life and what he gave off. I tend to think, it's just me, this is Chris, I tend to think that Jesus had a sense of humor. I mean, I think he did. I think he can't, all those images and those pictures we have of Jesus and those pictures where he just looks like he's the most miserable person that ever existed, I mean, that's just not the Jesus I see. And so I think Jesus has a grin on this face when he says, Hey, you better stop sinning, carrying around your mat, you sinner, you. How could you? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And that's the other key for me. Something worse can happen to you than sinning? Is there anything worse? For the way, what does the Bible say? For the wages of sin is what? Death, eternal separation from God. Is anything worse than that? So I'm looking at this thing and Jesus is like, hey, you better stop sinning by carrying that mat around, you know, you sinner. If you don't keep carrying that around, something worse is going to happen. Like, you know, these guys are going to take you out. I think they're busting up because they realize how silly their rules are. The guy's just been healed and they're all uptight because he's walking around with a mat slung over his shoulder. Here's what I don't want you to miss about this story, this sign that John's talking about. People who recognize Jesus for who he really is, like John did, if you and if I, if we recognize Jesus for who Jesus truly really is, this whole idea of, of religious people and having a fear, uh, religious rules and having a fear of the church, of religion and all of that, that, will, that, that grip that has on you will loosen. If you know and understand who the real Jesus is, the grip of religion in a negative sense, and the grip of religious people and institutions will lose its grip on your life. And it won't have the, 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 the power maybe for some of you in your background that it has had over you. I'm telling you, discover Jesus, the Jesus in scriptures, and you will discover that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to set you and I free, not to put us in bondage. So I pictured Jesus and this guy and they're busting up and the guy says, okay, Jesus, I get it. Thanks, I appreciate it. You know what? I'm going to go back and, and tell them uh, who you are, and I'm going to have a little fun with this. 
John chapter 5, verse 15. So the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I mean, sometimes Jesus would say, don't go tell anybody. He didn't say that clearly in this time. So he went away, told them who he was. I imagine he's still walking around with the mat, kind of strutting along like, hey, he just talked to Jesus. I'm good. I mean, I'm good. I'm safe here. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, verse 16, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. They were so wrapped up in their oral tradition that they lost sight of compassion. They were so blinded by religion and religious rules that they couldn't even see the miracle that was in front of them. And as a result, they stepped up the pressure on Jesus. But Jesus doesn't back down. And so in verse 17, it says this, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. First of all, notice a couple things. Jesus is saying, I know you know that God is actually violating your commandments because God's always working. He's working today. So God's violating your very commandments. And secondly, I, just like my father, am always working. Like father, like son. And so for this reason, verse 18, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in parentheses, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Who does this Jesus think he is making himself equal with God? That is the exact question. Who does he think he is? When, when Jesus uh, uh, cleansed the temple, the people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders don't say, what do you think you're doing? They say, who do you think you are? Exactly. That's the question. And John gives us his gospel and says to you and I, I want to show you. I want to show you signs. I want to show you evidence that's going to serve to show us exactly who Jesus is. Verse 19, very truly I tell you, this is Jesus talking. He says, the son of man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Do you want to know what God is truly like? How do you figure it out? Do you look in the stars and the cosmos? Do you look at what God's created? Do you look within? Do you want to know what God is truly like? It's easy. You simply look at Jesus. Jesus represents the Father. What he does, he only does what the Father has him do and what the Father does. Jesus says, you want to know what God's like? Watch me. And then Jesus says, gentlemen, I get it. I get it, and I understand that it might be a little confusing for you because, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that the text gives you eternal life. No, 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 it's not so. Eternal life isn't in the text. It is in who the text points to. Verse 39, he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. There's that phrase again, to have life. These religious types, they've opted for the, for the written over what was living right in front of them. They've chosen their interpretation of the text over the living demonstration that was right in front of them. Jesus was telling them, sure, up till now you had an excuse because all you had was the text. 
You have, that's what you had. The, you had the, the word, what we call the Old Testament now. You had the prophets, the wisdom of Solomon, the writings of, of David and, and the Abrahamic covenant and all of that. I understand, but Jesus says no more. No more. Jesus says now it's a new day. It's a new dawn. The mystery is being revealed. I'm a living commentary on everything that has come before. All of that, Jesus said, pointed to me. This is your sign. Jesus says, I'm your sign. The scriptures that you study, it was all pointing to me. And so for you and I today, this is why the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're so important for us because we live in this world that is filled with moral and religious and political and ideological ideas and assumptions that are just kind of tearing us in in, in, in different directions. And there's a constant tension with those. And God said, I want to make it easy for you. I want to make it simple for you. I'm going to show up and I'm going to speak. And so God was clear through Jesus. Compassion trumps religion every time. God is a God of love and a God of compassion. There's a place for laws and rules and and, and commandments, of course, but those flow out of, uh, excuse me, love and compassion. So as we wrap up, I wanna ask you to look inside. Does your version of your theology of the faith, of politics, of any ideology, any belief system that you might have or hold to, does any of that get in the way of you loving people that God loves? Because if that, what you're holding to gets in the way of loving others, you're at odds with God. Does your interpretation of your faith get in the way of showing care and concern for others. Because if so, you're at odds with God. Does your version of religion, politics, whatever system that you go operate by, if that gives you permission to mistreat others, then you're at odds with God. Because Jesus said, look at me. I'm your sign, the scriptures pointed to me. And Jesus made it clear in this story that compassion gets the priority. Love gets the priority. And that's what God has called every single one of us to. To live a life living and honoring God as we constantly ask the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you with hearts open to your love. God, forgive us in those times when we have got so wrapped up in trying to be holy and righteous and maybe even having this zeal to want to protect you that, God, we've gotten judgmental and we've lost sight of why you gave us your laws, your commandments, Jesus, you came to show us you are a God who loves. God, I'm reminded of your word where it says your kindness leads us to repentance. So God, I pray that each one of us would live a life constantly asking the question, what does the love of Jesus require of me and what does that look like? So I want to invite you right now in your own way, in your own words, 
as God has been speaking to you, as the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, you ask the question, God, what does what your love require of me? And I want to humbly live that out. I want to demonstrate that. I don't want to get so caught up in what you've given me that I've lost sight of why you've given it to me. So just in your own words, say, Jesus, I humbly come before you and I desire God to love people the way you love people. Show compassion the way you show compassion. So Jesus, use me to make a difference, to show the love of the Father as seen through Jesus. And I ask for you to point this out to me and show it to me in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.